So today we are going to continue in the book of Acts. Uh, if you're newer with us, we are in week 38, so there's plenty to catch up on. Uh, and if I tried to give you a summary of all of it, it would be longer than the actual sermon, so I'm not going to do that. Um, but we come today to the second of Paul's five defense speeches in the book of Acts. And so uh, this is our typical diet of teaching, is just walk, work our way through a book of the Bible, and so that's what we're doing in Acts. And so here we are, the second of Paul's five defense speeches. Uh, and even though a lot of the text today feels like just a report from the author of Acts, which is Luke, um, I love the reassurance that's given to us in the very last verse of what we're going to cover today. Because uh, it's, it's one thing to know uh, what to say about Jesus and how to say it, right? That's really important. We might call that apologetics. Uh, but we also have to know where to find the strength and the boldness and the courage and the humility wrapped all together uh, to actually do that, to actually proclaim it. And so today... Uh, in our text, we're going to see that the name, uh, that the same Jesus who stands with Paul uh, now stands with us and, and Paul in his trials as well. And so uh, maybe some of you came into here today needing a little encouragement. Um, I'm sure all of us need encouragement in some regard. And so that's kind of my prayer today that we'll have a little encouragement from this text. And so I hope you walk out of here today just kind of knowing that the same Jesus who stands with Paul stands with us, uh, that the Jesus who was with Paul in this text when he testifies before this big group of authorities who had a lot of power over him is the same Jesus who is with us when we speak the gospel to those who might push back against it or who might hear it. I had this experience yesterday. I was sitting on a park bench at a playground just sharing the gospel with somebody uh, as our kids played together, and that was uh, a little nerve-wracking, right? And I'm supposed to be the professional, and I get nervous about it too. Uh, so we all need this encouragement. Now, up to this point in Acts, we have seen Paul afflicted, perplexed. He's been persecuted. If you know the text, he's been struck down, but not destroyed uh, because he knows what we're going to end our sermon with today, which is that Jesus is with him. And that's really, really important. Uh, so this entire section of Acts really is pointing us to the sufficiency of Jesus, to the sufficiency of his grace, for us, uh, this Jesus who often, which is the testimony of all of our lives, who often uses those who are broken and imperfect, and maybe even those who were set very much against him in order to accomplish his mission to make all things new, right? Because he does everything for his own glory, and when he uses weak vessels to accomplish his mission, he gets more glory. Uh, and so that's what Jesus tends to do. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Acts 22. That's where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse 22 of Acts 22, and we'll, we'll get into Acts 23 as well. But let me give you kind of just a reminder of where we've been. Paul is in Jerusalem, and as was prophesied, he has been found by his enemies, right? Persecution and uh, pain are following him, as he knew would. Uh, and so at this point in this story of Acts, a mob has formed, and they try to kill him. Uh, but Roman soldiers come and take him into custody in order to actually save his life. Uh, and so we see that there are Jewish leaders who are accusing Paul, if you remember from last week, of defiling the temple. And they accuse him of actually starting a revolt against Rome, but they can't prove it because it's not true. They're starting a rumor. Uh, and so last week, uh, we read uh, Paul's initial defense speech, 
But what appears to have happened based on the text today is that it has fallen on deaf ears. They're not listening to what he has to say because what we see is that after Paul talks about his ministry to the Gentiles, the Jewish mob, um, they start a riot and and they, uh, they resume the riot that they had begun. So in Acts chapter 22, verse 22 is where we're going to pick it up. This is right after Paul has talked to them about his ministry to the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish. Verse 22 of Acts 22. Up to this word they listened to him, then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should, be not, he should not be allowed to live. So they want to kill him now, right? This is, to say this is a tough crowd is a humongous understatement. Um, they, they want to do away with Paul. Both their words and their actions are expressing the outrage that this mob is, uh, is inflamed by. He, he never really uh, gets a chance to address them. Listen to verse 23. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. Now, that's not just as a result of the cloaks coming off. They're throwing dirt into the air. Right? And so he never gets a chance to directly address the charge that he's defiled the temple. Uh, but as one commentator said this week, I, I read this. He, he said this. The real issue is not whether Paul defiled the temple but whether Judaism was prepared to deal with Christianity. And so it seems that it was not, at least in this text, right? And so thankfully, though, Paul is rescued from the mob, verse 24. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should, examine, he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. So after the crowd rages at Paul and they begin to want want to kill him, um, Claudius Lysias, who is the Roman tribune, takes him away for examinations. That's the name of the tribune that is mentioned here. Uh, But unfortunately, if you're paying attention there, you saw that uh, Lysias really wants to use an incredibly brutal, brutal uh, method to get information out of Paul. Uh, It says that he wanted to examine him by flogging. Flogging is a form of beating, extreme. And so this is uh, absolutely brutal. And it was not uncommon for the victim to die as a result of this absolutely unjust and inhumane treatment of a person. Verse 25, but when they had stretched him out for the whips. So that tells you what's coming for Paul here. They stretch him out to whip him. It says, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by. Now, understand, a tribune is over a centurion. So the tribune orders this. The centurion is going to carry it out. And Paul says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Uh Uh-oh, is what you're thinking if you're the centurion. So he asked, is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? Now, he knew it was illegal to flog a Roman citizen without a formal trial and sentencing. So he's appealing to earthly law here. Verse 26, when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the centurion knows the law. He knows the severity of what's going to happen to him, i.e. death, if he continues to flog Uh, Paul, and so he stops and reports the problem to the tribune, who is his commander. So this is pretty incredible, actually, because we already know that Lysias, the Roman tribune here, uh, the commander, is frustrated, he's confused, he wants answers, 
But now this idea of Paul being a Roman citizen throws a wrench into his plans to torture Paul to get information out of him. 27. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he, Paul, said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So Lysias questions his citizenship, uh, questions Paul about his citizenship. Lysias reveals that he became a Roman citizen by way of payment or maybe bribery. But Paul says, hey, I'm a Roman citizen by birth which is very significant. Roman citizenship by birth was one rung above purchased citizenship. It's especially prestigious. So for a, for a citizen who has purchased their citizenship to do harm unlawfully to a citizen by birth is a serious, serious crime. 29, so those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Just the fact that he had bound a Roman citizen without cause was enough to make him uh, terrified, afraid. So this is another swing and a miss by the Roman tribune. Remember, what does he want? He wants to get to the reason why the crowd is so mad at him. He's trying to figure this out. So they stop the examination, and Lysias, the tribune, still doesn't understand. He doesn't know the truth about what's making this crowd mad at Paul. So here, here's just something before we move on. There's an interesting application when it comes to obeying the laws of the land, which, right, the last three or four years, we've had a lot of debate about that in the Christian church when it came to restrictions and masking and all that stuff. And I'm not making a statement on any of that, but here's an application when it comes to obeying the laws of the land that we live in. We know that Paul urged Christian to submit to governing authorities in Romans 13. In fact, that was used so many times over the last few years. But he also, listen to me, expected the government to exercise its duties rightly and justly. And again, I'm not making a statement one way or the other. I lived through it with all of us, right? Uh, I remember every Thursday being like, oh, what's Mayor Hogan going to do, right? And watching those, I, I remember all that. And so what we see here in Acts is that Paul challenges those in power to wield their authority honorably, and yet he submits to it. That's interesting. It suggests that there's a difference between suffering for Christ and being a victim of injustice. There's a difference there. There's a distinction we have to use some discernment. We live in a land of laws, right? And if the laws protect us, we should appeal to them. That's an example we see here. If these laws prevent us from following Jesus, well, then we say better to obey God than man. So it's discernment. It's, it's neither the flaw of saying, do whatever the government tells you without question, and it's also not the flaw of saying, we don't have to obey anything we don't like. We're not saying either of those. It's just a little application here. Verse 30, but on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. So Lysias gives Paul the night off, kind of, in his search for answers, and he brings Paul before this council. We, we know it as the Sanhedrin. This is a uh, large council of Jewish religious leaders. So basically, he's turning to the Jewish court for help. He's like, hey, help me. The Sanhedrin is made up mostly of Sadducees, but there are also some Pharisees. And if you're like, what in the world do those names mean? That is just two different 
uh, groups of religious leaders who have differing views on the Jewish faith. And we'll get to what that means in just a minute when Paul starts to kind of push their buttons and you'll see the main difference. Okay, so now into chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, so he's still addressing them as brothers. I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Okay, so this is great. Paul looks at the religious leaders and he starts with, Brothers, character matters. Brothers, holiness matters. And I have lived my life with a good conscience. And so, yes, when it comes to defending the faith, when it comes to uh, practicing a little bit of apologetics, your character does matter. One of the flaws that I see in my generation and younger is that we have reacted against what many of us grew up in, which was don't do anything that looks remotely even uncouth to the church because you will damage your witness. I heard that my whole life growing up. And I think many of us have reacted to that and said, who cares about my witness? I can live in Christian liberty. And yet Paul is saying, no, no, brothers, Christian, Christian character does actually matter. We should pursue and, and walk in a blameless life. Holiness matters to God. Obedience matters to Jesus. And when we're made aware of sin, we should be able to humbly repent in order to maintain a good conscience Maintain our ability to be a witness for Christ, yes, but most importantly, to glorify God. None of us are above correction, not even religious leaders in this kind of setting. Nobody is above correction. So look what happens next. This is the opposite of what should happen if you're confronted or reminded about holiness. The high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. So in the middle of Paul talking about the importance of high character, he gets struck across his mouth. This is violence now. This is bizarre. This is a crazy reaction. This is mob violence now infiltrating its way into this religious council. Here, the leader in the Jewish high court who should be displaying civility and justice displays the opposite of it. His response is totally, just understand, this is not acceptable behavior. It's unbiblical. It actually probably should have been disqualifying for him. He clearly loses his temper in the moment and he uses violence to treat Paul unjustly, right? And so he treats Paul as if Paul is a wicked troublemaker, but according to historical records, what's interesting is that it's actually Ananias who is the wicked man. He was known for greed, a quick temper, and even violence. So, let me just right put it out there. If you have a spiritual leader who is really legalistic against you on some specific sin, they're probably hiding that sin on their own, in their own life. That's what happens. So we need to watch out for that. And this is me putting myself under the church, right? That any one of you could come and say, hey, pastor, you, you seem out of line here. And I shouldn't go, somebody strike him on the mouth. Like, that's wild, right? That would, that's crazy. And look what Paul says here. It, right, if you get hit in the face, it tends to cause a reaction. Look at his rebuke in verse 3. Then Paul says to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Now, he rightly calls out the hypocrisy of the high priest. 
who was likely dressed in his religious robes, right, in all the regalia. But his language of whitewashed wall is an insult. It's an insult. It essentially means you might look clean and stable on the outside, but inwardly you are corrupt and flimsy. Now, even though he is right, it looks as though from the text he may have actually regretted saying that last little part. Now, how many of us can relate to this, right? You've said something, and you might have been right when you said it, but you kind of wish you could take your words back. And we all know it, but you can't take them back. You just can't. Now, we've said this before in this series, but there is some debate here surrounding this passage about whether or not Paul was right to have done this. So there's different perspectives on this, and they're fascinating, and we'll get into it a little bit. But if you have some time this week, I would really just encourage you to dive into those different perspectives on whether or not Paul was in the right here for insulting the high priest. But let's keep going. Verse 4. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? So now they're correcting Paul. Now, again, some have argued that his quick insult here doesn't reflect the spirit of Jesus, and, and there is some weight behind that claim. Right? Paul is not Jesus, so it's, it's okay for us to read and go, oh, maybe Paul sinned. That's not like out of the question. But remember, both Jesus and Paul were condemned of hypocrisy, but at the time of his trial, what did Jesus respond with? Restraint and, and silence. And so, yes, we speak out against injustice, but we do so with restraint and with respect, and we don't give away our holiness for the unholiness of someone else. So, so here is where uh, the debate comes in on whether Paul is right or not. Paul said, I did not, this is verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So some would say that Paul responded this way out of sincerity. It, it could be that Paul genuinely did not know that he was talking to the high priest. Remember, he's been gone for a while. Possibly he didn't know who Ananias was. Others have said maybe Paul's vision was blurred because of the beating, uh, which may have think. And I like that because that's my love language. <laughs> maybe, right, because I'm drawn to this and I, ha I have to be careful what I say and what I don't say uh, to people. I have to be careful not to just always blur out the first thing that comes to my mind because it, it can sting, right? I can tend to be a little witty and sometimes it's hurtful. And so the view that Paul is using sarcasm is possible. And so um, he, he's basically saying, brothers, I see nothing priestly about this guy. Right? And so what, what we know is that Paul sought to address people respectfully. We know that about Paul. That's his heart. And when he crossed the line, he, he admits it here. And as much as I hate to have to admit it, this is probably what we need to do as well. If you cross that line, you, you, you need to write then. Just admit it if someone brings it up to you. Even when we know we've been wronged, right? We do what is right. We admit when we've been wrong. Here's a key for just Christian ethics in general. We never play the game of, well, if they hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have done this. No, that does not get you off the hook. Right is right and wrong is wrong. Doesn't matter what order it came in. And we are people of truth and we are people of light no matter what. We walk in the truth no matter who has done what to us. So now, as we keep going, the trial kind of just takes a left turn. It takes a sharp turn as Paul, in the middle of his speech, brings up the resurrection of the dead. 
Now, if you know this history between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, two different sects within Judaism, then you know why this would have caused an uproar. Look at verse 6. But when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, son of Pharisees. So now, understand this. The Apostle Paul is a Pharisee. I know we caricature Pharisees in the Gospels. We're like Pharisees, the bad guys. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee, and he remained a Pharisee, right? He didn't say, I used to be. He said, I am a Pharisee a son of Pharisees, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And in our day and age, in our culture, and throughout cultures, this is what will put you on trial for Jesus as well. That you believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's what will do it. We believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead and that when he returns... There will be a bodily resurrection of the dead. That's what we believe as Christians. We just said it in our most ancient creed. And that's what will put us on trial, so to speak. Verse 7, when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So Paul brings up the resurrection, and the Sanhedrin, the entire council, loses it. The Sadducees, they don't believe in any of the supernatural, uh, in, in the existence of anything supernatural. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the spirit. And they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, embrace these ideas. So those of you who find yourself in the kind of evangelical conservative world in which most of our stream of Christianity comes from, understand you closely relate to the Pharisees. You believe the same stuff they believed about the resurrection. They embrace these ideas, and so there's this, the effect of this kind of theological controversy here is really pointed. It's really sharp. They actually, def- the Pharisees defend Paul here. But we see that the shouting turns to violence, as it so often does, and Lysias once again has to intervene. Verse 10, and when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, This is wild mob rage, right? Afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. So, you got to feel a little bad for poor Lysias here. He cannot get an answer, right? It's... He, this is like Lysias watching a show you've invested like two seasons in, right? And then right as you get to the climax of the show, the final episode, internet goes out. And you're like, oh, what happened? Right? It's th- that's what's going on with this story. He's getting close to the answer and he just can't get an answer. But once Paul is back in the barracks, he's kind of left to nurse his wounds, to think about what in the world, to process what in the world just happened. Something incredible happens, and this is really where I want to hang out just for the last bit of our time today. Look at verse 11. The following night, the Lord, that's Jesus, stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So, what in the world's happening here, right? Jesus himself appears to the discouraged apostle here. 
having appeared to him in Corinth previously, Jesus now shows up in Jerusalem to comfort and to kind of energize Paul for the rest of his trip, which is going to end up in Rome. Now, we don't know exactly what's going through Paul's mind before Jesus shows up, but it's probably safe to assume that Paul is feeling kind of low, right? He's just been beaten almost to death. He has been saved by Romans. And so now he is waiting for whatever's going to happen next, and Jesus shows up to encourage him. He, he found an unsupportive church in Jerusalem. Remember, he got there to Jerusalem and was like, oh man, they're really not with me. He suffers physically. He suffers emotionally. Like This is trauma that he's going through. And, and he may have even questioned some of his own actions. And so he's in need of the grace of Jesus, and that's just what he receives. Jesus tells Paul that he's not done yet, that he needs to get to Rome and keep doing what he's been doing. And, and I understand that Jesus' words are for Paul here specifically in this moment. And that's really important for you to understand too when you read your Bible. Like everything written in the Bible to specific people is not just automatically for you, right? But we can still find these words reassuring and find application in our own lives as well. So here's four things I just want to wrap up with at at the end of this section in verse 11 as we think about this specific verse. Number one, Jesus knows us. Right? We, we know this from the scriptures in general, from the New Testament in particular, in the Gospels, but we're reminded of it here. Jesus knew Paul's situation, he knew Paul's condition, and he knows what you face as well. He knows the things that you're struggling with, struggling against. We are never outside of his gaze. When I was a student pastor in Orlando, and I was just out of Bible college, I was really caught up in all the cool things I was learning about theology. And one of them was this Latin phrase, Coram Deo, which means in the face of God, that we live Coram Deo. We're always in his gaze. And I was reminded of that this week, that Paul and us, we are never outside of the gaze of Jesus. He knows us, his sheep, by name, right? God knows you by name like first name basis, nickname basis. He knows name for you that nobody else knows. And he knew Paul's condition, and he knows ours as well. Secondly, we see that Jesus is with us. This is so important. The presence of Jesus is part of what comforted Paul. Yes, Jesus' words comforted Paul, but his presence alone brings comfort. Paul likely felt pretty alone then, and the reality was that Jesus was with him. Jesus hung on the cross for Paul, and here he stands with Paul in these barracks with him. So be encouraged. What did Jesus say? I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. Third, the Lord Jesus is not against us, but he's for us. He's for us. Jesus appears to Paul not through a vision or a trance, But here he appears somehow physically and he says, take courage. Now here's what's really interesting. It's actually one word. That phrase, take courage, is actually one word uh, in the original language. But our English translations make it two words to make it understandable in English. That's how translation works. And what's really cool about it is that only Jesus uses this in the New Testament. Jesus is the only person in the New Testament that we have recorded to use this language. And in all five times that it's used by Jesus, it brings comfort. He says to the bedridden paralytic in Matthew 9, 
take heart or be encouraged, my son, your sins are forgiven. To the woman with the 12-year hemorrhage in Matthew 9, the, the woman who was bleeding, he says, take heart or take courage, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. To the disciples who were scared as he walked to them across the Sea of Galilee in Matthew 14, he says, take heart, take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. In the upper room on the night of his crucifixion in John chapter 16, he says, take heart for I have overcome the world. So this is the word of Jesus for Paul. And because of what we believe about inspiration in the Bible, it's for us. Everyone who is weary, take heart. If you are struggling, take heart, find courage, find your strength in Jesus. Jesus knows us. He's with us. He's for us. And lastly, he is not finished with us. He wasn't finished with Paul. If you walked in here and you still have breath in your lungs, then there is still stuff that God has for you to do. God had a job for Paul and nothing will stop God's plans. Ephesians 2 tells it to us like this. For we are his workmanship. You are God's artwork. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before you were ever in existence, before you were ever born, God in eternity past, in his sovereignty, knew the things that he had for you to do. And if you're breathing, he still has them for you to do. So he's not done with you, so take heart. Be encouraged. You have purpose. Right? So many of us in our day and age are like, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's your purpose. And if you're breathing, you still have stuff to do in order to, to accomplish that. He knows you. He's with you. He is for you, not against you. And finally, doesn't matter how old, how healthy, how young, how sick, how rich, how poor, where you come from. If you are breathing, God, Jesus has uh, something for you to do. He is not finish with you yet. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for uh, the time we get to come and we get to hear from your word. And I just ask now that you be with us as we wrap up our morning together around your table. And we just pray that as we go out from here, we would remember all, all of these four things, but particularly that you are not done with us yet. That you are with us so that we can accomplish the good works you have given us, namely to become like you, Jesus and to see your kingdom come in our world. And so we pray all these things in your name, Father and Son and Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.